Genesis chapter 49, last verse, and the first verse of the uh, 50th chapter, Genesis chapter 49, starting with verse uh, 33. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Then over to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Nehemiah chapter, this is one of my favorite verses. Now, I'm a little partial to this verse because I only have girls. So you'll see why. Uh, although Joseph had a whole bunch of sons, didn't he? So, I mean, uh, Jacob had a bunch of sons. Well, Joseph did too, but, uh, but Jacob had a, a bunch of sons, although he had daughters as well. But uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 12, and I've got that verse up here as well. And next to him was Shalom, the the son of Halahesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. See, that's when you're handy around, you know, see that? He and his daughters made repairs. That's what we're working on in our house, apparently. And then Isaiah chapter 9, you know this passage, you probably hear it most often around Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born... And unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now for the presence and the power, the comfort, the conviction of your Holy Spirit upon us, your people. We want to hear from you this morning. And we know, Lord, that you're the one that designed fathers. You have the roadmap. You have the plan. We simply have to trust and obey. And, Lord, we know that you'll bless it when we do. We pray you bless this time. And, Lord, just draw us all nearer to you than when we walked in these doors. In your name we pray. Amen. By design, dads have a lot in common, don't they? You heard the kids. A lot of the kids' answers were similar. My dad's fun. He does this. You know, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, fathers joke around more than moms, apparently. We've seen that in both videos. But dads have a lot in common. They have many of the same challenges, hopes, dreams, many of the same obstacles, many of the same fears. And they all come in different ages and different heights and different backgrounds, and they have different interests. But seemingly in their DNA... Uh, they operate in certain predictable manners. And here's an example, and this is without any coordinated efforts. Here are a few things you'll never hear the typical dad say. Here's one. Hey, kids, do me a favor. When you go into a room, please remember to turn all the lights on and please leave them on when you leave. Here's another one. You'll never hear most dads say this. Well, how about that? I'm lost. Looks like we'll have to stop and ask for directions. It's not happening, ladies. Number three. Hey, family, when I'm driving down the highway, please turn all the interior car lights on. And this is especially helpful when I'm backing the car out. Here's one. Now, I may say this, but some of you car guys wouldn't. I don't know what's wrong with your car. Just have it towed to the nearest mechanic and pay whatever he asks. What do you want a job for? I make plenty of money for you to spend. (laughs) 
And then how about this one? Here's my PIN number and my debit card. <laughs> Not happening, huh? We can, we can find a humorous that many dads are irritated by some of the same things. But understand that most American dads are equally similar in not leading the home according to the scriptures. Most American dads are not. Most American dads are not even saved. Uh, We have an absent dad dilemma in our society. And sometimes even ADD has been called that, absent dad disorder, because they find that the vast majority of kids with ADD uh, don't have a present dad in their life. Uh, But the absent dad's uh, dilemma is even in homes where dad is there. Because he's there, but his mind's not there. I think almost all dads, saved or unsaved, uh, that choose to be involved in their kids' lives, and that's not a given these days, that not all dads want to be involved in their kids' life, but those that do, I think both uh, groups, saved and unsaved, want to see their children do well. I think they uh, want to see their kids prosper. I think they want to see them go on to achieve something in life. Uh, Whether there is... Wherever there's those places where there is no dad, though, uh, the results are epidemic. Multiple studies have confirmed that sons without a father are more likely to be incarcerated. We see this in our juvenile ministry. More likely to fail in their marriages. Uh, They're more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. A study by McClanahan and Sanford found that boys without a father in the home, they're less likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to be unemployed. They're five times more likely to be poor, and they're ten times more likely to be very poor. Fathers have a big impact, don't they? For those fathers that are in the home, most, of course, uh, they're in the home. They're trying to give stability. They're trying to give guidance. They're working hard to put food on the table. They're working hard to at least provide a safe environment. Uh, These dads want their kids to someday be self-sufficient, have their own credit card and PIN number, right? They want them to be able to stand on their own someday. We'd all agree those are good things, right? Those are all good things. Even dads that have never even read a Bible generally have these same goals. You'll find your unsafe co-workers would agree with everything I just read on that list. The majority, though, the majority of dads don't have any specific plan, but they hope this. And I've talked to a lot of men. I've been, I was, my first involvement in ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina, was men's ministry. Uh, most men, they hope by working hard and providing the necessities, perhaps going to church and stressing some level of education and career, that things will work out. That's, that's the plan. That's the the general dad plan uh, in our country. But the Lord has so much more for fathers and children than that. Do you believe that? That God has a lot more for children and fathers than that. And yet it's only when a father has been personally transformed by Christ through salvation and then being discipled himself that we see the need to start to care about the far deeper spiritual needs of our children and the impact of ignoring those things, because there is an impact. You can't see, it's like watching the hands on a clock. But someday, those things come together. 
taking notes this morning, I've titled our time and uh, the word this morning, Footsteps of a Father. And we'll look at three things that, uh, that we'll want to understand this morning. Uh, it's kind of God's plan for us from the scriptures as dads. One, we'll look at set the course. Second, look to the source. And three, train up a force. See, that's what God wants. He wants us, he wants us to not just be ourselves uh, involved with the Lord, but that there would be an entire generation and multiple generation raised up to walk in the fear of the Lord and the power of the Lord. I'm primarily speaking this morning to believers. And my prayer is that uh, as Christian fathers, we'll be encouraged together, we'll be exhorted together. And as the Lord speaks to us, that we're alerted to some of the areas that God wants to change in our lives for His glory, for our benefit, and the blessing and growth of our children and families. Amen? Those are the things that God wants to do. He's always, because He's a good Father, He, he knows every single heart here, and He knows this is an area I want you to grow in. This is an area I want you to grow in. This is an area I'm going to encourage you. This is an area, oh, this has got to, you got to drop that out of your life. It's not helpful. It's, it's not going to help your kids. And I don't know what those things are. God knows uh, for each and every person here. But let's start with this set the course. Romans 8, 5 says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of what? The Spirit. You have to set your mind there first. Everything about the Christian life is first setting the mind because the actions and even the body and certainly the flesh will have to follow. The mind has to be set in the right direction first. Just like it's the mind that says, I must set alarm clock, right? Alarm clock will never set alarm clock. Although they seem to randomly go off at times when you don't ever seem to set them. But nevertheless, you have to set it and your mind has to say, I'll set it. We can't apply God's help and his wisdom in our lives until we set the sail in the right direction. It's a dichotomy to say something like this. I want to follow biblical counseling on fatherhood and being a father, but I have my own personal plan for life. They're contradictory terms. That's putting the proverbial cart before the horse to say I have my plans, but I still want to do it. Uh, according to the Bible. No, it's God's plans and his word, not our plans. Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else. It'll all fall in place only when we're seeking him first. I want to look at two things under setting the course. First thing, his will above all. Jesus taught us what to pray about, didn't he? And he said first to pray, Father, thy will be done. So dads, we have to be praying God, what is your will for me and for our family? How do, you, how do you want me to live according to your will? Jesus taught, uh, but Jesus is mentioned um, in Isaiah 9, 6 uh, as eternal father. Now, I don't have time to get into that study because some people might would say, hold on, hold on, is God the father or is Jesus the father? Well, yes. Uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And in, and in many respects, Jesus, what Jesus is saying is when we come to Christ, uh, he will lead us like a father. 
He'll correct us. He'll chasten us. He'll teach us. He'll train us. He'll disciple us. But we have to be obedient sons and daughters to the Father. Kids, you're called to obey your parents, but we're all called to obey our Heavenly Father, what He's written in His Word. But He'll be our eternal Father. So we know that we can trust His will because it's only for our good. He'll provide care for us. He'll provide love for us. He'll provide protection. Not only now, but hey, we can only provide things for a limited time. And even when our health fails, we can't even do much anymore. Someday the kids are taking care of the parents, right? But Jesus is in that way. He'll care for us for all eternity. But even Jesus, when he was speaking to his heavenly father in Luke twenty-two forty-two, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. We have to lay our will down. Just like Jesus did. He set the model for us. He sets this immovable model of surrendering our lives and surrendering our will. And until that happens, until we surrender our will, we can really go no further as fathers than where we are today. We have to set our will down. Um, We risk giving our kids knowledge without authenticity because they will know, have we really surrendered our will or not? The second thing, and we see this in the life of Jacob, Uh, we read in Genesis chapter 49, verses 33, and then 50, verse 1, uh, pilgrimage and priorities. What do I mean by that? In Genesis 47, 9, remember when Jacob, uh, he had come down because Joseph Joseph was ruling uh, as second in command in Egypt, and there was the big famine all in that part of the world, and, and Jacob comes down at 130 years old at that time. He comes down... And he, uh, Joseph introduces him to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the most powerful king in the earth at that time. He introduced him to Pharaoh, and this is what Jacob said. The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my life. Well, that sounds encouraging, right? That's what Jacob said to Pharaoh. See, Jacob had come to see that life is actually really short. Now you'd say, well, 130 years, and he still lives 17 more. Uh, 130 years, that doesn't seem short, but he had come to, see, come to realize that, that life really is a vapor, that really are, we are passing through really quickly in this world. And we are called to be pilgrims, to be sojourners. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were told not to build stuff not to try and build a, uh, a real permanent place there that God was going to give all that when he someday set up his kingdom. Now, Jacob, he hadn't always been content with just passing through. If you're familiar with the life of Jacob, early on he wasn't content with anything. Wasn't content with his birthright, wasn't content with how long it took to get things. So he would lie, he would deceive, he would cheat. He was self-willed. He didn't like God's timing. God had a way of getting a hold of Jacob, didn't he? He even tweaked his hip. God will tweak our hip if he has to to get our attention, won't he? But finally, God had Jacob realizing you are just passing through. At one time, he built a house in Succoth, and he bought land, and he bought land in a bad place. He bought land in Shechem, which was kind of like Sodom. And that went horribly wrong. Two of his sons went berserk. His daughter had a really bad thing happen to her. And all because at that time, it was Jacob's will here, and God's was not really being followed. And he learned from that. He learned from the school of hard knocks. He learned the hard way that God, I'm supposed to be a pilgrim, a sojourner, 
walking through, different priorities. And he really changed those priorities in his life. You know, the great C.T. Studd, Studd, missionary, said, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Many of you have heard that. Still echoes through years and years after it was written. But we have to have a a long-term focus, but not just a long-term focus, it's really an eternal focus, isn't it? Because what we're doing is preparing the lives of our children and family for eternity. Long-term focus. You know, most people don't have a long-term focus. They have a very short-term focus. Now, some men will have a long-term focus in one specific area. Guess what it is? Dollars and cents. Dollars and cents. You know, Jesus did not, that was, his focus was on people's hearts. I'm not saying that you know, we, we should be bad stewards. I, I did a whole series. It's, it's, it's a wise thing to be stewards and plan, but, but not be fixated on the checkbook, but be fixated on this book and allow God to transform it. Jacob, at times early in his life, was not focused on the right thing. His priorities were not in the right place. We have to have an eternal focus. Our priorities as fathers today, in many respects, hear this, dads, our priorities right now, our priorities today, June 21st, first day of summer, 2015. That's a good sound, isn't it? Uh, First day of summer. That's already felt like it. But our priorities right now will have a bigger impact on our children and family 10 to 15 years from now than they will right now. Those of you who have 5-year-olds, 15-year-olds, they'll be 20. That scares you, I know. I can't believe how fast ours have grown. But five, ten, or 10 to 15 years from now, what you're doing today will, it is like planting a garden. What you're planting today is what's going to come up 10 to 15 years from now. Very important that we have our priorities set. That Hey, we, the kids know, mom and dad, we're just passing through. This is not our home, and it's not yours either. Dr. Clarence Schuler, who wrote a book, I had recommended, What All Dads Should Know, he said, have you, he asked this question to men, have you ever thought about how your father, uh, how about, how about how, have you ever thought about how you, fathering your son, will impact your family to the third and fourth generations? Have we ever thought about that? It's good for us to think, he's mentioning sons there, he also has other parts about daughters. But we have to understand and know the massive difference between spiritual victory and temporal worldly success. Do you see that di- there's spiritual victory? It'll last forever. It's Jesus said it's laying up treasures where? In heaven. Temporal success, no one will remember all the great things that people are accomplishing in temporal success even five years from now. Eternity. Pray continually. You've got to pray continually that God would give us that kind of discernment to know, is this something that's really going to last for eternity? Am I focused on the right things? Set the course first. Second, look to the source. We know who that is. It's the Lord Jesus. And I wanted to start first with, uh, number one, pray for forgiveness. Um, this has to be done a lot. Did anyone pray for forgiveness this week? Yeah, I would say anyone this morning, I think every day we can look back and say, wow, I'm thankful I'm saved by grace. I've said this before, I'll say it a hundred, maybe a thousand times more before I die. The best day we've ever lived 
is still filthy rags. The best day I've ever had, it doesn't measure up to anything to God's perfection, and yet he still loves us anyway. But once we've in sincerity asked for forgiveness and we turn away from whatever the Lord has identified uh, and we begin, or it's something he wants us doing that we're not doing, and we begin to obey his commands, once we've done that in sincerity, you know it's great? We get to just rest in his love and grace. You don't have to beat yourself up about it anymore. You don't have to take and whip yourself on the back like Martin Luther used to do before he came to Christ. You can rest once you've really asked for forgiveness. John Ortberg, in his book, You Have a Soul, writes, Remember, we are not what anybody thinks of us. We are sheep tended by a shepherd. You know, your kids might think you're mighty and strong, but Jesus doesn't think that. He thinks we're still weak. Because all sheep are weak. All sheep wander off. All sheep need to be brought back in. So we need to be praying for forgiveness because we're going to make mistakes as fathers. Jacob made mistakes, as I mentioned, but he found grace and forgiveness to start fresh and move forward. He got a fresh start. doesn't hurt to live to 147. You get a few fresh starts in that, in that kind of lifespan. But that's a few more years to learn to lean on the Lord. That's what really, really asking God for forgiveness is learning to lean on Him. Not trusting in ourselves. Not kind of staying away and say, well, uh, you know, I, I failed too many times at this. Yeah, and guess what? We'll fail again, won't we? In spite of his failures, in spite of Jacob's failures, in spite of Jacob's sins, here's the great thing. By the end of his life, you saw Joseph's response. He fell on his father's face and wept. You talk about a love of a son for a dad. By the end of Jacob's life, it wasn't just Joseph who looked up to his father the way Joseph did. It was all of his sons gathered around the bed. All of his sons looked up to him that way. Some of his sons had walked away from the Lord and had come back. And it was God's forgiveness of Joseph, or forgiveness of Jacob. Because God forgave Jacob's early mistakes and allowed him to move past those mistakes, allowed him to finish strong and to command his sons, and even the generations after he was commanding there in the final words he gave to his sons just before he died. This is a note to older dads here. Jacob lived longer than any dad in here will ever live. But older dads, don't think that the mistakes you made years ago can't be undone. Don't think the mistakes you made years ago can't be undone. In some respects, yes, they can't be undone. You can't go back and do them. But God is pretty good at taking broken things and putting them all back together, isn't he? And he can restore and he can overcome past failures. You know, I have learned way more by failure than I ever have by success. Can anyone else agree to me on that? On men? I, I look at, I've had so many failures and I've learned so much more by failing. I'm like, why did I do it that way? And the Lord's like, because I needed you to fall flat on your face a few times. Pastor Chuck talked about that. Uh, if you watched, um, uh, you know, just how the Lord had brought him along. But don't think that those past mistakes uh, doom us. God can restore bad relationships. Man, I wish I hadn't said that to my son when he was 17. How do I get, you know, all of those things. God can restore those things. Number two, walk in humility and grace under this looking to the source. Walk in humility and grace. 
As, as we've received grace, we need to humbly walk in it. Jacob didn't present himself as a spiritual giant to Pharaoh. Hey, listen up, Pharaoh. I'm one of the big three. It's Abraham, Isaac, and me. You're going to hear a lot about us for the next 3,000, 4,000 years. He didn't do that, did he? And by the way, the country's going to be called after me. Not, it's not going to be called the nation of Abraham. It's going to be called the nation of Israel. That, that, that's me. He didn't do any of that, did he? He said, I've had a long life, but it feels really short, and I've messed up a lot. I'm paraphrasing. Now I'm here to bless you. Because he actually did. He actually blessed Pharaoh right after that. No, Jacob didn't present himself as a spiritual giant. Don't act like something we're not. He was just a man who had made it to 130 at that time in spite of his frailty and in spite of his failures. You and I are only here but by the grace of God. Be humble about it. There's nothing you have or done that's anything but God's goodness and grace. Amen? He can take it away as fast as he gives it. And Jacob understood that by then. This wasn't false humility. It was a living testimony. The big difference. We don't want to be false. We want to be genuine. We want to be authentic in what we say. Our lives should be a living testimony, not only uh, uh, to the unsaved world, but also in our home. Our kids should be able to see the living testimony of our life. Our wives should see it. My kids know I'm not the same man I was 20 years ago. Next Sunday, I'm doing my uh, message on, I got saved 20 years ago this month, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. Me and my wife got saved on the same day, and I'm sharing a message about it next Sunday, and I hope you'll be here. I think it's uh, one of these things that it's applicable to all of us, what God does. But you might still be amazed (laughs) as dads. You might still be amazed at dads that sometimes that God ever made you a dad. Does anyone else... I look at myself in the mirror sometimes. I cannot believe I'm still perplexed that I had joined this club. You might even say to yourself, how could I lead my kids when I never did the kind of things I'm telling them to do when I was their age? You ever have that thought? I, I, I don't do these. I didn't do these things when I was 16 or 15 or 12, and I'm trying to teach. I feel like a hypocrite. That's just the enemy, by the way. That's, the, that's not God saying that. Because Jacob had to tell his sons to not do things that he would have done. But live a certain way. Go this way. Go this path. Well, what if they find out that I was a screw-up at their age? First of all, they probably already know that. (laughs) They've probably been to family reunions and heard somebody say something. And they didn't tell you they heard it. They've heard things you don't know they've heard. And they love you enough to not tell you they heard. So just go ahead and get over that. And some of you dads, boy, some of you got dads from the 70s that, that you were in high school. Like my brother is 10 years older than me. He was in high school. He graduated in 1977. I graduated in 87. But uh, some of you 70s they, dads, they've probably seen pictures of you when you were in the 70s. Remember when J.J. had the afro and um, Mike Brady had one and uh, uh, who else? Uh, the whole Cotter group, uh, Welcome Back Cotter, I mean, by the way, that should never come back. Uh, I know it tried to make a mini comeback, but they, you know, if they find a picture of you leaning on a Trans Am with a Led Zeppelin T-shirt and with a look on your face like, I am it, or, or a look on your face like, don't even mess with me. Yeah, they'll get an idea of the past you without you having to say much. I remember that look when I was, because uh, I was 
you know, right in 77, Trans Ams and Camaros and all that stuff. Ponch and John, all those uh, really cool, really cool guys. Everybody wanted to be a motorbike uh, cop after that. But remind yourself and your family often of the grace that God has brought you from those places. The grace and the mercy and purity now that is in Christ. You remind your family, this is, this is what God did. We don't live that way anymore. Continually present Christ's perfection in the home because everyone else is going to need it too. Your wife will need it. Your kids will need it. And then I want to look at this last area. This train up a force. This is where the rubber hits the road in commitment, though. Setting the course is essential. If the mind and the heart is not set in the right direction, then we're all just wasting our time. Setting the course. Looking to the source. If you're not getting forgiveness from Jesus, reassurance from Jesus, help from Jesus, then you'll never go any further either. That's important. But then you have to actually do what he says and carry it out with hard work, investing in our own growth. Remember I said, this is not just them growing. This is us growing. And as we grow, they grow along with us. Train up a force. What do I mean by that? You cannot effectively disciple others without first being discipled yourself. Would everyone agree with that? It's, a, it's going to be impossible to teach someone something you don't know. You can't train others without being trained. But you have to want to be trained. And you have to be willing to be trained. David, um, uh, why am I going blank here? Uh, Wilkerson. David Wilkerson, you know, uh, he went in there and reached Victor Cruz and all those uh, gang members there in New York. But he said for years before he passed away, tragically, uh, car accident, he said for years, disciples have to want to be discipled. I mentioned Victor Marks, and you'll see him speak for a couple of minutes on Wednesday night if you come out. Uh, he's helping to reach those that are res- being rescued, fleeing from ISIS, those who had been trafficked, those who have been sold as slaves for all different horrific things, those who have seen their parents killed. Uh, he's working now, giving his time over there. Uh, he could have never trained the Navy SEALs and Delta Force and weapons disarmament and hand-to-hand martial arts if he himself hadn't first been trained and had put in years of commitment to be as expert as he is, a master at all those different things. And now he teaches that to young 20-some-year-old guys that are joining these elite forces. But you can't teach those kind of skills unless you know those kind of skills. And you can't know those kind of skills unless you've been taught them, you've learned them. And what he's doing is teaching people to do these things so they can fight against evil and the evil forces of this world. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.4, No one engaged in warfare engaged himself with the affairs of this life that he, may, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul uses warfare and soldier when he's talking to Timothy. He's like, Timothy, as, uh, as A.W. Tozer said, the world is not a playground, it's a battleground. Satan knows it's a battleground, but he has Christians thinking it's a playground. He has dads thinking it's a playground. Meanwhile, he has total control of the kids' minds through what's on their iPod, what's on their smartphone. And some of them are looking at things their parents don't even know what they're looking at. Really bad stuff. Soldiers, though, are fully engaged due to this what? 
due to the serious nature of it. They know that their skills have to be sharp. It's a life or death thing. But spiritual training is far more important than weapons or combat. You agree with that? Spiritual training is far more important than weapons and combat. Someday all the armies of the world will be wiped out, but those that live for Christ will live on. Jesus, the perfect example of a father. Now, Jesus, Jesus could have taught the disciples to be 12th-degree black belts. What did he do? That's not what he taught them. It's not what he taught them. He taught them how to live and walk by what? Faith. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, they, by the sword of the Word of God, not by a physical sword, but the Word of God, they shook the world. They planted churches in Europe, Asia, Africa, the Middle East. Thousands came to Christ. Churches planted all over the place. Millions are saved, and you and I are saved today because of the work of people like the Apostle Paul and Thomas and Philip and on down the list did. And those guys were engaged in the battle, filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a force, isn't it? Jesus raised up a force, didn't he? And he started with just 12 guys that weren't particularly good at anything other than fishing. Now, there was a few other things, but for the majority of them. A force the enemy cannot withstand is one that's filled with the power of God. The scriptures use military terms to convey the commitment that's needed and the power that's generated when walking in Christ. Now, as I was putting this together, especially this last section, I thought to myself, is force too strong a word? Force? Is that too strong a word? As soon as I had the thought, I mean, should 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 I go with train up, responsible, well-adjusted American children. I really did. I mean, I think the culture hits me just like everybody else. Like, that force is kind of strong. As soon as I thought that, popped into my head, Psalm 127.4 just, boom, hit me right in the head. And by the way, Christians, when verses pop in your head, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. When a song you heard in Target can't get out of your head, even if it's one that's just kind of goofy, it won't leave. That, that's just the weakness of our flesh. But when verses come in our head, that's the Spirit speaking to us. And this was the verse that popped straight in my head. Like the arrows of the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Psalm 127.4, that verse popped into my head. Like an arrow of a warrior. Now, I know the ancient archers were something that most people, I, I've studied a little bit, but I said, I, I need to do a little research to better understand the depth of what, do you, know, do you know who wrote that chapter, 127? Solomon wrote that one. It wasn't David. Solomon was the wisest man in the world. He had read and understood all the societies of the world. He, people, kings and rulers came to him all over the planet. Solomon had this incredible understanding when since Solomon said warriors and arrows, he was speaking very, very specifically So I want to do a little research on this. Did you know competitive archers today can launch arrows traveling at 200 plus miles per hour at targets about three quarters of a football field in length, and they can hit dead center, 200 plus miles an hour, 75 yards away. But today's competitive archers, they don't hold a candle to the skills of the ancient warriors that were archers. Not even, I mean, they're not, they'd be annihilated 
by the ancient archers. These ancient warriors, the ones Solomon would have been familiar with, uh, like the ancient Philistines. The Philistines were tremendous archers. They were masters of bow and arrow. His father, David, was a master. He, we would consider him a grandmaster archer, David. And David also was great with a slingshot, as you know, dead center. Uh, mighty warrior, David was, in using the bow and arrow. But ancient warriors, they weren't just standing still like today's Olympic competition. No, no. They were sometimes on horseback. They would be running full steam, uh, running and shooting at the same time. They would also ride in chariots that are moving at high rates of speed, and they were pinpoint accurate even then. It was thought by some to be a myth what ancient warriors and even Native American tribes uh, here in North America were said to be able to do because there's no footage of them doing it. But they were just written down by historians and people that saw them. One ancient writing recorded that the, uh, the Saracens, which are Arabian tribes that fought against the Crusaders, they came up out of the Arabian Peninsula. They had to be able to launch three arrows before the first one hit the ground. That's one arrow every half second. A Danish artist and archer, Lars Anderson, who's you can watch his clips on YouTube. Uh, he began studying all the ancient archery and all the ancient writings he could get his hands on to find and understand if the ancient exploits were actually possible. Were these things possible, or were these just kind of the stuff of legends? Today, he's the world's fastest archer. Citing an article in Oddity Central, he can routinely launch 10 arrows in 4.9 seconds. Citing, uh, uh, reading from the same article... Uh, it is said that the Native American chief, Hiawatha, could shoot 10 arrows into the air before the first one hit the ground. A feat, again, deemed as nothing more than a legend by most professional archers. Then in 2011, Lars proved them wrong again. He managed to shoot 11 arrows into the air before the first one landed, thus setting a new world record. Apparently, the key to mastering the technique of holding the arrows in the hand and shooting them with short lightning-fast flicks of the wrist. This method was used in ancient times by master archers in China, Turkey, Persia. Of course, the list goes on. Greece, Rome, Israel, the Hebrew archers, all the uh, Egyptians, they all had this same ancient technique. The difficulty of this technique, and listen to this. this is, here's the spiritual parallel. The difficulty of this technique and the time necessary to truly master it meant that boys had to start practicing at a very young age. Hmm, you wonder what Solomon was thinking when he says this. He understood it, arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior. He knew they actually would hold multiple arrows. Try, just try those of you that don't. He would hold, they would hold multiple arrows at the same time, and they would, they would slide them in, boom, boom, boom. It's like, almost like a clip, but the clip is their own hand holding multiple arrows, and they could fire them off that fast. 11 arrows, less than, less than a few, uh, or less than 4.9 seconds, unbelievable. But it took a lot of time. And you notice David's words there, in the hands, takes time. But it, they really can be directed. As fathers, as we, are we as connected with our kids as a warrior was with his arrows? They could feel which ones were different. They would know when something wasn't right in the, in, in the construct. Are we putting in the time for spiritual training? And the time for us, we need to be trained up, don't we? 
for us and for them, as the ancient warriors did for their skills. God is saying with his help and our obedience to to this call as fathers, we can aim our kids straight in the direction of Jesus Christ. They'll still have to personally decide. They'll have to make a personal decision to follow Christ, but we can aim them straight in that direction. But it's getting darker and darker in this world, isn't it? It's, it's not, it doesn't feel dark when we're here on a Sunday morning. It doesn't feel dark here, but it's dark out there. They'll still have to personally decide, but we need, to, uh, we need disciples and kids who are like arrows, kids that can be used to penetrate spiritual armor and uh, spiritual bone, able to respond quickly to the world that's full of lies and deception. They'd be able to know truth from error and immediately make the right decision. When I was in Charlotte, I don't know how long ago, this is uh, maybe, maybe 99, 98-99, I was in a men's Bible study group, an accountability group. It was the first men's group I'd ever joined. It had a transformational effect on me uh, and all the men that were in that group, about 10 or 12 of us. And one of the guys, um, one of the guys in the group, he was at a fast food restaurant and uh, the kid says, the kid taking his order says, um, because he had a couple of his little daughters with him, said, you know, I feel bad for you when your daughters are my age. Now, I don't know what made this kid say that, because Dave is 6'5", 280 pounds, shaved head, former East Carolina football player. Uh, after he busted out his knee, he got involved in organized crime. He, uh, the, the Dave, in the old Dave would have just reached over and just tossed the kid. But this is what Dave said to him. Son, when my girls are your age, they'll be telling you about Jesus. That actually was a more powerful statement than saying, I'm going to rip your head off or something like that. Or just take my order and keep your mouth quiet or whatever. Arrows. Arrows. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. This is a proverb. It's a generally, general expectation if followed correctly. Even warriors, though, have errant arrows. So don't think that, oh, well, that means that uh, every single arrow, no, sometimes you have a bad shot. That's where you have to trust the Lord. But is it possible that training is really the key? That training is really the key? That there's not a quick fix? That this takes a lot of effort? The ancient warriors training from the time they were kids, that this takes a lot of effort to get to that level a lot of commitment, the time of a dedicated archer. And that the trainer also had to be built up. I've met Christian men that spent hours on hobbies, hours working on their cars. If their car was a disciple, it is soundly discipled. They know everything about it. Ask them two questions about their kids. Hours on their car. Fishing, golfing, home projects. Pouring their lives into their careers. Now, even the world knows something about this. You remember a cat in the cradle and the silver spoon? Even the world knows that this doesn't work and they still do it. But they spend very little time, some Christian fathers, very little time, some just minutes investing, and especially, and this is the worst, investing spiritually in their kids. They've outsourced it to mom. They've outsourced it to youth groups. They've outsourced it to schools, which is really not good. They've outsourced it to grandparents. But here's the reality. Many fathers don't invest in their 
own walk either. So they don't have much to invest in the kids' walk because they're not investing in their own walk. I love the Lord, but I'm constantly being trained up and built up by other men and various resources I'm reading, but it, it can never be just books. I have men in my life, other pastors in my life, many of you men are in my life. I'm at the men's fellowships. I'm gathering with other men. I constantly need to be sharpened. Um, you know, like Lewis Neely's in his 70s. He said, I'm 24 hours from losing it. <laughs> He's like, that's why he says, I will remain close, iron sharpening iron. We need it, guys. We need to be. Uh, Proverbs 18.1, listen to this verse. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. Solomon wrote that, and it's true still today. Men that isolate themselves, it's not a good thing. A man not in regular fellowship and discipleship, or at least seeking it, according to the Scriptures, is not seeking seeking Christ's way, but seeking his own way. That's what the Bible says. We can't isolate ourselves. We have to be in fellowship. Uh, Not just uh, corporate of this side, but get together. One of the things I was meeting with the elders on Thursday night, I said, you know, as we look at the rest of this year and in 2016, I want to have more opportunities for our men to be sharpened by other men. Some of that will be smaller, you know, one-on-one type, maybe some other group settings. We're going to be setting up a men's prayer time because we need to be built up. Warriors know this. Small seal units know this. Christians seem to say, well, that, I know that's important for that kind of battleground. Well, it's more important for this battleground. More important, Satan's fighting against us way harder than he is uh, against weapons. But two things as we close. Number one, pray for help. You're going to need help with this stuff. I think I've got it up there, yeah. You're praying something like this. Lord, I, I, I need your help to lay down the cares of this world and to take up my cross and follow you. We need God's help. I need God's help to care about the things he cares about. Uh, we need to pray for our apathy, for our fears, our fatigue, you know? Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Vince Lombardi used to love to say that when it's originally, I think it's traced to Shakespeare. But men, fathers, we need God's help, don't we? Yeah, we this, isn't about, uh, this isn't about being able to do it and just kind of on our own strength. We need the help of the Lord. Same psalm, same song. Where the arrows and the archers, verse 4, verse 1, you know this passage, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord is on my side, I don't got a chance anyway. Same, same Solomon, same chapter. This is not about trying harder. It's about genuine surrender and amazing grace. Genuine surrender and amazing grace. You know my life verse, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed in, persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed. I make a commitment, he helps me keep it. Because if he didn't help me keep it, I wouldn't keep any commitment. Hey, you going to be there? Nah. But with the Lord helping me, I can keep it. We have not because we ask not in prayer. And usually we ask not because we want not. That's really why. But if we want to be fathers pouring Christ into our families, it'll start with prayer. John Wesley's 21 accountability question. Some of the guys got it when they were up with us uh, uh, at the East Coast Pastors Conference. Number eight on the list is, am I enjoying prayer? Number 10 on the list, do I pray about the money I spend? He wrote this in the 1700s, 1800s. Prayer is hard work, isn't it, guys? Many guys will work on a Saturday for 12 hours and 100 degree temperatures and not bat an eye. 
Then they'll see a Home Depot commercial says, let's do this, and they say, let's do this. Then they'll see Nike say, you can uh, just do it, and they'll just do it. Then God say, hey, pray, pray in the air conditioning on your knees for 30 minutes. Oh. <laughs> Seriously, I want you to think about this for a second. How is it that that is 10 times harder than all the other things? I'm, I'm serious. I've met a lot of men, strong, physically gifted, all these things, and I've asked them, that's the longest you've ever prayed. Um, 15 minutes. So I, I, I want to understand. I'm truly, Lord, help me understand. How is it that we can do these other things for hours? Have no energy left. Because Jesus is pointing to something big here. Satan doesn't fight against that other stuff. He only fights against the things that are important. Right? That's why it's so hard. It's hard against the spirit. The things of the flesh are easy. Physical strength, all that stuff. Methodist Episcopal, Methodist Episcopal pastor in the late 1800s, uh, E.M. Bounds. Some of you probably have read some of his prayer books. He said, prayer is the infallible mark and test of a Christian. It's the infallible test. Hey, he said that, not me. Blame E.M. Bounds. But he said, he went on to say, but even the Christian has to cultivate continual prayer because it doesn't come easy. It's like learning to shoot. Now, you imagine how many times when you're trying to shoot those arrows, how many times as boys they feel, I can't hold them up. I'll never get, you ever wanted to give up algebra? All these different things. And you say, if someone says, no, you keep trying, eventually you'll get it. And you didn't believe them, but it actually worked. Because someone made you do it. The Holy Spirit is the one that will say, no, no, no. Press in. Press in. Pray that the word of God, pray that God would, um, well, you need another word of God. Pray that God would show you awesome, encouraging, amazing things in his word. You've got to read the word to see those things. Pray that you grow in the gifts of the Spirit. Pray with and over your wives. Pray with and over your kids. Pray and keep praying. And then the last thing, as we close here, lead by example and training. Uh, our kids will most often live to our level of commitment to Christ. And, and if it's really lukewarm, they'll actually go way below it. Um, a Barna study found that 61% of kids raised in the church that are now in their 20s and early 30s, are no longer attending church, 61%. Now, that was in 2009. I believe that number is now higher. Uh, then when they asked Christians, what are the two, two most important things you hope for your kids, you know what they were? Number one, that they get a really good education. Number two, they'd have a higher standard of living than we had. Nothing about Jesus. Salvation wasn't even in that list. What would it profit them if they went on to Harvard Law School made millions of dollars, and went to hell. But you would get to brag on them at the party. Hey, uh, you know what my kid's doing. And other parents say, well, well, my kid's on the mission field. They're wasting their time over there. Our kid has five degrees by now. Making a lot of money. But actually, you know that this generation is the first generation that actually will not have as good a standard of living on the whole as the previous so it's even a, Satan even has people believing a lie on top of the fact that they actually think, I can go on and on for that stuff, but I'll stop. <laughs> Here's the point. Church isn't near enough. Church isn't near enough. Church isn't even where it's at. It's fathers first and parents as a team discipling, but they have to first be discipled themselves and discipling. How did Shalom's daughters 
How did Shalom's daughters get on the wall making repairs with their dad? How did they get there? He had, them lead, he had led them by example. He had purposely taught them in, in their lives. He was a leader. He was a leader of people, says in the verse there, leader of half of the district there. Uh, he was a leader of people, but he was a leader first and foremost in his home. And because he was a godly leader, he led his daughters in the things that mattered to God. Because there was things that mattered to the nobles around there. Uh, I can't remember what verse it was. It's in chapter 3. I'll read it to you. Um, it says in verse, um, verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5, uh, next to him was the Tekoites, and they made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. The big shots, they weren't into all that work of the Lord stuff. But Shalom and his daughters were. And he modeled, I believe he modeled, three things to his daughters. Number one, he modeled for them how to work. Work ethic. He taught them skills. The importance of work. The character, the effort. How to work for the Lord. And under the Lord. These nobles, they didn't, they didn't care about the things of the Lord. They may have worked hours. On, it doesn't say that the nobles didn't care about work. They might have put in 20 hours a week for the bank or 20 hours a week for this business or that business, but the work of the Lord, they weren't putting their shoulder to that, but his daughters did. Number two, they served with their father and parents. Serving together bonds us. This is why it's true in Christian uh, lives that we serve together, too. It deepens relationship. It allows for more practical teaching. When parents and kids serve together, dads and moms can make scriptural things actually apply and have application. It's not just theoretical. You ever heard people say, uh, they're really good in the classroom, but in the real world, right? It's theoretical versus actually being able to do it. This is serving with your kids. Telling them in Sunday school, hey, the whole world should know about Jesus, but we never go tell anybody about Jesus. Well, theoretically, missionaries do that work, right? So Shalom is a no, no, they're right here at my side. A heart for repairs, number three. A heart for repairs. What does that mean? Well, see, the, the rebuilding of the walls wasn't really about buildings. It was about people inside the buildings. And they had a heart for people, a heart to make repairs. You know, I'm going to have to close it with this, but, you know, it comes down to we have to be trained, man. We can't train the, we can't put the arrows in the bow if we ourselves aren't being trained. If we're not loving our wives as Christ loved the church, we're not loving our kids and dedicating that time, if we're not putting in personal time in the Word, if we're not coming to gather with our brothers and sisters in prayer, it's important that we gather in prayer. And I, one of my first thoughts, and I, when the shooting the other night, I'm like, it's a, you know, it's a small group there at prayer meeting, or it probably would have been a whole lot more people dead, but very few people go to prayer meetings, not just in this church, in any church in America. I talked to pastors around the country. They said the least anything that shows up is prayer. And yet, did you know that every single great work of God has begun with prayer groups? You ever heard of Pentecost? They were in the upper room doing what? Praying. Well, say, we, we pray at our house. It's not the same. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. He was talking about his church house. He'd say, well, that, that was then. Well, that's Pentecost. No, it's all the other awakenings. Two or three gathered together. He was talking about the body of Christ there, not just the family uh, uh, unit praying together, and though that's important too. But be accountable. 
Be in fellowship with other men. Come out. Uh, we put things together that are really, we need that stuff. We need to be bonded together. We need to be taught. Pastor Greg Johnson in New York said credibility comes through accountability. Avoid accountability. Lose credibility. Accountability, not just if you're at a senior position of some, some business, you need to be accountable, but also in the church and in your home life and your family. Your kids will notice if you're a lone ranger. The kids will notice that. And then they're not really listening to it. They'll nod their head, but deep in their hearts, they're not really saying, they're, they're ch- checked out. This is what Cam Han's whole book already gone and t- documents all this stuff. The kids know how to answer their Christian parents, but deep down when they're asked when they're 20s, they mom and dad didn't even believe that stuff. Why do you say that? And they'll give the answers. They say, well, the church was too far away, this, that, all these different things. Love and serve with the fellowship. Be involved in sharing your faith and repairing the walls of broken lives through the gospel. You know, your kids need to be able to hear you say, hey, I told something about Jesus today. They need to be able to hear that. So they'll do it. They'll follow it. Let your kids and family know that God can help them too to live righteous. Amen? You got to remind them of those things. You heard some of the kids say things, and it's good. I'll close with this. This is a great encouragement to us all. Can you imagine living in the days of Noah? The whole world was so wicked that God killed all of planet Earth except for one family. You think it's now. F.B. Meyer, who was theologian and pastor in the 1800s, he said, amid the vice and crimes of their times, an aged pair gave their newborn the son rest. This is what Noah means. Parents raised Noah in that world, and Noah changed the world. We're all alive because of him. Parents, dads. Our kids are going to follow in our footsteps. One way or another, we can be sure that we have the opportunity to have a Jacob story, a Shalom story, by surrounding them with the truth of God's word. And they'll get the same assurance from Jesus as they follow him. The only question we have as fathers, will we follow in the footsteps of Jesus? That's what it comes down to. Are we going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? But here's the good news. It's a new day. Today's the first day of summer. It's another Father's Day. Jesus, everything's, he said, behold, I make all things what? New. Every single person in this room, not just the dads, every single person, God has something, I guarantee, he says, follow me on this, and I'll bless you for it. You believe that? Why don't you stand and we'll close in prayer. We went a little, little over with the video. I hope you enjoyed that. But we're just gonna, I'm just going to close you all in prayer. And then uh, you've got, uh, if you want a snack, I think, did we, we put all that away or what, what was the plan? More. Oh, there's more out there. Okay, so uh, finish it because I know ladies don't like taking half-eaten dishes home and all that good stuff. So feel free to finish it. But uh, let's close in prayer, and I'm just going to pray over all of us as dads. I hope this is encouraging to you, not discouraging, because God is for us. I think I had that on the last slide there. Those are the four things. He's for us, amen? And he wants our families to have a story. We could write it down someday, a Shalom or a Jacob story, amen? That's what God's desire is. Satan's got a different plan, but I believe if we press in, we can see God do great and mighty things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
we pray, Lord, that as dads, uh, you'd just cleanse us and forgive us of areas where we need to grow. Lord, you'd help us and strengthen us in those areas. Uh, Lord, we, we need your help. And uh, Lord, we know that we don't have to live in the past discouragements. If there's men here that look back and say, I wish I'd have done this differently, Lord, they can move forward from those things, knowing that you're a God that restores. And Lord, we know that uh, we need help uh, in prioritizing our time, that we could be mighty men with our children like arrows, aimed in the direction of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for the kids of these families. Lord, if any are walked away, they'd come back. And if any, Lord, are even teetering on the edge, Lord, that you would bring them back, that you'd even use maybe uh, something that was said, something in your word, that uh, there would be a prompting of a discussion or an opportunity to pull back anyone that was thinking about wandering away from you. Lord, we pray that uh, you would just uh, bless and strengthen the families in this church, and you'd multiply us, not for our sake, but that, that we would see more people in Richmond and around the world saved. And we ask these things in your name. I pray your blessing and refreshing upon all the dads and their families today. Even today, uh, as the Lord's Day, that uh, there's just some good rest and fellowship and time with family. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.